Welcome back to the Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today's guest is Dr. Maritza Johnson. She is incredible, hilarious, and shares an amazing story. Yes, she is a security and privacy researcher, and she shares a delightful and humorous story of how she herself fell for the most elementary of phishing schemes. Um, But I don't want to steal her thunder. So without further ado, Dr. Maritza Johnson. Welcome back, Maritza Johnson. Happy to have you. Super excited to be here. Um, So let's start right off the bat. You are a privacy and security researcher. That can mean a lot of things. Uh, For the benefit of our listeners... I will ask you to qualify that. What what does that entail? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm a human centered security and privacy researcher, and I would say the the stuff that drives me is how do we make security and privacy accessible to people in all of the ways that it affects their daily lives these days. So, like login, app security just device management, basically any way your hands or eyeballs are touching the device. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's funny because I, so I've been working in the field since about 2006 or 2007. And actually I was just talking with a friend yesterday morning about how much the world has changed in terms of our expectations for what individuals are expected to manage Mm -hmm. as they're interacting with technology. So back in 2006, it was your online banking password, your account, right. like email and banking were probably your most important things. Then all of a sudden we had mobile devices and that was a big thing. And maybe you have a screen lock, maybe you have your banking app, maybe, you know, you're allowing some app to have your location data and, you know, that brings new questions. And Somewhere between, I guess that's, let's call that like 2008 or 2009, sometime in the past 10 years, it's just really snowballed into everybody having everything on social media and everything is an email and everything is online. And there are a lot of new questions. I guess sometimes I pat myself on the back for picking a, picking an area that will only get more complex and we (laughs) don't have great solutions on. Yes. Job security. (laughs) Yeah. Job security, like check. And sometimes I feel like deep, deep shame that our field hasn't done better. Like I look back to some of our problems and the problems are the same. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's like the technology development is occurring at exponential rates relative to how quickly we can modify human behavior. Absolutely. Yes. Humans. um, A lot of people will talk about human-centered security as, you know, the problem statement is the human's the weakest link. And I'm, I'm not really in favor of that phrasing because it's very like blame the user. Right. I think really... The people who are making stuff, like we're we're making things, we've made things without regard to how that fits in people's lives right. or how that fits in society or how that fits in the world. Like we haven't done a good job of paying attention to the broader effects of what we're doing. And right. or, I, think, I mean, just like take Cambridge Analytica <laughs> as yeah. an example, the end user of Facebook has no control or even knowledge of information being piped into this particular app. So how could they be held responsible for that design flaw? That's right. And yes. they, d- they don't even know what to ask for or what to ask about. They didn't even realize that you could capture that information to mm-hmm. share. Yes. I, I feel like in, so one of the things related to like being a human centered security and privacy researcher. Um, so they're like, what I've just talked about, like, those are like my questions. Those are the things that drive mm-hmm. and the problems. And then I think the thing that makes my work interesting and perhaps a little different would be the methods. So we end up applying, you know, to get answers to these questions, we end up applying the toolkit of human centered design, human computer interaction, understanding things like ergonomics. Like I have kind of like a massive set of subdisciplines that I try to tap into to better understand, like, or really to try to understand how do we understand people? Mm -hmm. So that could be, you know, a 
almost like a classic psychology like experimental study where you have people in the lab and you have a control and an experimental group and you're trying to understand is this is this intervention effective maybe you're doing a large scale survey just to understand you know like Ashley was saying what is people's current understanding what are their attitudes how much do they know is there some useful um kind of foothold that we could get into crafting a useful intervention sometimes it's looking at um existing databases of like forum conversations to understand like what are people talking about what's useful what's interesting looking at the headlines like how are people kind of mischaracterizing the situation like basically we're I feel like I'm constantly looking for points of misunderstanding points of misalignment between people's goals and technology's goals and trying to figure out how do we reconcile that and how do we bridge the gap yes and right now sorry the thing that got me thinking about that is Ashley kind of saying, you know, people don't even know the questions to ask. And I feel like there's something there where right now there's almost been like a strong libertarian streak around how we expect people to deal with security and privacy. Like you're out there on your own. This is all on you. If you want good security, you go get that good security. And if you don't do it, shame on you. But really like there are collective needs here that we're not servicing. And I think Cambridge Analytica really hit home on that because your data could have been you know swept up as part of that without you taking any action other than friending somebody who installed that app right which is crazy it's right. sorry it's crazy that that was many built passive in. levels like, <laughs> to so get many, to yeah. the data collection right? That's right yeah there's so many things wrong with the way that that setup appeared that it's just and we wouldn't have known to ask those questions because until no. that broke, wasn't even known that that data was sh- being shared. And also, yes. again, I, I think the user behavior probably runs two to three years behind where the tech is. That's not a scientific estimate. That's just based on my experience uh, talking with other people. So those of us in the security field who know the latest on 2FA, MFA, whatever those protocols, you go and you tell somebody like my mom, well, just put on two-factor. And she's like, what are you talking about? Right. Yes. So also related to this, I got fish last week story. Oh, yes. My go-to solution is, okay, for any email account that you have, if you're using that email account to sign up for services or it's a place where you're getting password recovery emails, if you have an important email account, you should have 2FA enabled. So I go over to my neighbor's house. I'm sitting on their computer. I am ready and willing to enable 2FA for them. Wah, wah. SBC Global and AT&T don't even offer 2FA on their email accounts today. It's 2019. 2FA is not an option. That yes. is a problem. <laughs> yes. And I say that like so certainty, like with certainty, I looked at the settings. I combed through it. I looked to see, can I turn on 2FA? No, I cannot. I did a search to find help center material to see if I could turn it on. No. Let's so I spent and let me sorry, let me minutes. reiterate for the the listeners that this is Dr. Maritza Johnson, PhD in computer science. So it's not like she doesn't know her way around settings. That's right. Not only do I have a PhD in human centered, usable, you know, human centered security and privacy, usable security and privacy. I'm teaching a class on human centered security and privacy. I worked at Google on the settings page of two-factor authentication with that team. I was on that team. I know all of the ways in which people fail at setting up 2FA. And this isn't even like... But guess what? People can't even fail when it's not an option. I'm like, I was so fired up about this. I was like, this is... It's just... And I'm sure Nonsense. your, I'm like, sure your I'm neighbor so was mad. like, why is she fuming at my email account? That's, totally. That's mine. <laughs> totally. And it doesn't even, it's not an option. <laughs> yes, which is crazy. So this isn't even like they have it and the only option is SMS and we know that's insecure and like tisk tisk because NIST tells you not to do that. It's just not an option. I'm like, how? Like, yeah. So I feel like recently I've had a shift in my thinking When I first started looking at usable security, I was most interested in how do we help individuals? How do we help individuals make sense of the settings they're offered, of the decisions they have to make? And I feel like that's the wrong point of influence now. Lately, my questions are more around for the people who make things, for the people who are designing the services, 
for the people who are managing the policies? How do we help them? They're also not security experts. Actually, I do wonder, like, at AT AT&T, like, who's the person who has decided that they haven't implemented 2FA yet? And I I have hope that somebody's going to come in and be like, oh, Maritza's so wrong. Like, they have 2FA. It's right there. Like, I can't believe she didn't see it. If that's the case, then like double shame on you because <laughs> I looked for it for like 15 minutes. Like, no, no. And also, so I'm feeling like extra angsty about like usability stuff right now because I'm teaching this class and I'm just tired of technology sucking so hard. Um, being an expert in usability, <laughs> I know that I don't have to feel bad because something's not usable. It's not my fault. Right. It's not my fault. Yeah. So, so, so it does. AT and T should have two factor. Full stop. If they do, they mm. should hire somebody to make that usable and discoverable. And if they think they've done that, they should try again. All and, right. And listeners, reach out if you find it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Please yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you did. You did mention the story that we were talking about before we hit record. So let's. Uh, Turn back the clock a little and and revisit um, how Dr. Marissa Johnson replied to a phishing email. I did. Hi, I'm Marissa Johnson. <laughs> I fell for a phishing attack. All I- right, well, good. Let's <laughs> let's hear it. So, the bit about this story that I didn't share a few minutes ago. In addition to. Like I'm a researcher on, you know, human-centered security and privacy, all that. I'm teaching a class on the topic. I also help prepare lesson plans for high school teachers to talk about security and privacy. Brilliant. I fell for a phishing attack in the week when I happened to be writing a lesson on social engineering and online scams. Wonderful. It's beautiful. It's all the, of the, the universe, the universe the has universe. a delightful sense of humor. Doesn't it? Like, as soon as this happened, I was like, I need to tell George about this. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to sit on this because we could talk about all this just on the podcast for forever. Um, there's, it's just so beautiful. Anyway, so I was, I was on my phone in a store waiting to check out, you know, checking in on email because I had a minute and I saw an email from my neighbor and it said like subject line, urgent, all caps, exclamation points. And then the body is something like, uh, sorry to bother you. I need help. Neighbor's name. I didn't bother to check who the email was to. Turns out it was to the whole neighborhood mailing list. Um, I didn't bother to check the email address that it was from. I didn't bother to check any of the things that, you know, a security awareness training would tell you to check on, you know, how do you avoid a phishing attack? So I just saw it and like given all the, you know, I had just seen my neighbor five minutes before in the parking lot. So I replied to the email. I'm like, yeah, sure. Anything you need. um, Let me know. Happy to help. Here's my phone number. You know, you can call me too. You can call me Brilliant. too. Here's my social. That's right. Here's yeah, here's my phone number. Oh, you need credit card info? Here's that. No, I didn't go that far. It was just like, yes, sure. I can help with anything. Let me know. By the way, you can call me by phone too. As soon as I hit send, like the email's out. It's like it's out onto like the inner tubes. And I'm like, that was definitely a scam. So then I text my neighbor. And actually at that point, I'm still kind of like not sure. Like maybe it's a scam. Maybe it's not a scam. I don't know, like, I've had emails from other people that have, like, some people do write email subjects that say urgent in all caps. Like, that's not totally crazy. So then, you know, my neighbor responds. She's like, yeah, our email's been attacked. It's been hijacked. Sorry. So so then I'm, like, standing at the store trying to, like, focus on what I'm doing, but freaking out because also I know that, okay, so now they have my email address. They have my phone number. They know I'm an idiot. Like <laughs> they know I'm an easy mark. What else are they going to do? They know I'm part of this neighborhood because I replied to the neighborhood mailing address. So I'm just like, I'm, this is a spear phishing attack. This is spear phishing. And I'm like, what if this was spear phishing to directly get at me? Because I'm always railing against like how crappy everything is on the internet. I'm like this is, I just, I deserve this. Don't I? Um, it was a hack just to humble you. That's right. A hack to humble me. A hack to be like, you claim to be an expert in security. 
<laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, oh yeah. Also, also cause like two weeks before a friend and I were dicking around with some guy on the internet for making stupid claims. And I don't know, I'm just like pulling into mind, like all the ways that this could right. be like, this is specifically, yeah, this is very personal. They caught me at my moment of weakness. You know, they knew that I was going to offer to help this neighbor. I don't know. It felt really personal. It wasn't personal. Um, cause that's not how scams work. So well, then I'm thinking about my lesson. I'm thinking about like what's going on. Also freaking out because I'm not at home and I had 2FA on my personal Gmail account turned off. Yikes. <laughs> like at that moment. <laughs> right. And that was that was because of a broken phone. So I did like the part of the story where you decided, should I continue grocery shopping? Should I run home and turn on 2FA? That's right. I had a shopping list um, that my husband wrote out for me and my husband does all the cooking. So... So I have to I have to do the things that he asked me to do, you know, getting groceries and stuff because he's going to cook. So if I don't, you know, yeah, I, I got to be sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. Right. right. It's like we, we both have our jobs. So unfortunately, like I aborted the shopping trip. Right. <laughs> I was to like, run home I have and to turn on 2FA. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm like I have to get home. I'm like, I can be home in 12 minutes and I'll have 2FA back on. I definitely need to act fast because I didn't know like what was going on with this attack. And then I'm just like. So I'm thinking about like, how do I protect myself personally? Also thinking about the lesson that I'm writing for these high school students. Like, what do they do? Also feeling like really, this is how my mind works. I'm like, I'm sharing too much. Um, Just like feeling really iffy about like having dedicated 10 plus years of my life to working <laughs> this area. And I'm like, I fell for this. Plus like, there is no good advice. I'm like, I know now that this person knows my email address. They know my phone number and like, what can I do? I'm like feeling really powerless. I'm right. feeling really not good about like the whole situation. And I get home and I start ranting to my husband about what's happening. And he's like, you're really overthinking this. Like you're overthinking this so hard. I'm like, but do you know, like, do you know it's not a spear phishing attack? Do I know that I'm not on some list yeah, now? You only like, know what one I half know? of the, the yeah. equation, right? You know that you've, you've triggered the trap. That's you right. don't know I've triggered what's the trap. waiting on the other side. And it, there aren't very many effective solutions for recovering from this. Like, is there some protection means where I can like get, um, you know, my email address known so that, or I don't know. And I was thinking about like safeguard cyber a lot because I do think that you guys, you know, this is like one really useful solution that does cover all the bases. Because mm -hmm. like for me, I'm like, well, now I have to go look at Gmail stuff. I have to go look at all the accounts where I'm using that phone number that I've given away as my two-factor thing. Like, yeah. There's so many things. I'm like, these are like two, I don't know. It's It was a lot. Um, but it's good then, because it got you thinking. It also, it also struck me as we had been talking and you said that, you know, you thought it was spearfishing and how brilliant it would be to target a neighborhood group, right? Because yes. then you would know it's all this certain set of people you can draw a circle around it rather than like sort of mass blast hit people all over the place, right? Yeah. Um, and that brings to mind, lately we have seen more phishing attacks um, going after very targeted groups rather than mm -hmm. just like spam emails because if you can get inside the group, then you can either impersonate somebody in that group, which is just lowers the trust uh, factor for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so I just think that that's an, that's an interesting new development is just very focused. So, for example, earlier in the week, there was this uh, huge uh, account hijacking of YouTube creators, mostly in the car reviews and car tuning space. It was like a lot of them, like people with hundreds of thousands of subscribers it's their full-time job you know oh, no. and uh the hypothesis is that somebody targeted like a social media influencer database and just grabbed like a segment of that and knew that if i could crack into this one segment get all the accounts dump them on the dark web sell the the accounts but it was very focused rather than mm -hmm. try to like mass blast people I feel like an attack like that is genius because the whole thing about being an influencer is that you're open to getting emails all the time. Yeah. You're open to emails. You're open to getting free stuff in and exchange for what you do. And you have monetized social media accounts. Yes, that's right. And you probably have a brand that you've built up that you want to protect. Yeah. At, and somebody could, you know, hold you ransom for that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's so – I'm amazed kind of how – how wide just i'm amazed just like the the 
open open opportunities there are for how easy it is to to run scams like this. Yeah. Okay. So then once I okay then, you know, I'm freaking out. I'm at home. Yes, I turned back on two FA and encountered some usability problems there. So that's you know yet another rant. Um, I feel like. <laughs> My husband has told me on numerous occasions recently that I'm a rageaholic and I need to calm down. But I'm like, this stuff is not working and it's really getting under my skin for some reason. Um, because then I go and I turn on, I want to turn on my, the 2FA from my Google account, which I, I worked at Google from like 2014 to 2016. I did the user research on this feature. I know all the ways in which people fail or not all of them, of course. I know a handful of ways that people, the common ways people fail when they're trying to turn on 2FA, mm -hmm. the usual misunderstandings, what can go wrong. For the life of me, I could not just feel confirmation that 2FA was correctly turned on from Right, you fill out a bunch of fields, you hit save settings, and then you're like, I just need a big green light. You're like, yay, we're, we're good to go, or just some or indicator. <laughs> Yeah. And I even like I printed out my recovery codes twice because I printed them once, somehow had not turned on 2FA, went to leave, then went back to turn it on and then was prompted to print them again. I'm like, wait a minute, I just did this. Right. Which creates and doubt. Like, yes. Right. Yeah. And like those codes are really important. So fun fact about those codes, almost nobody prints them out. You should really make sure you have those if you turn on 2FA. Yes. Because the whole thing about 2FA is that if you don't have those or if you don't have some way, like if you don't have your backup authentication um, settings configured, you can't get back into your account. Right. And I don't know that that's apparent on the page. It's not because, because I think people, most, most people probably think it's optional. People think it's optional and it's not optional. And I don't and know how many people also own a printer anymore. <laughs> I mean, that's to true. be honest. I own a printer and I, I really like it. <laughs> you know what? I'm embarrassed to say of all the tech in my office right now, my printer is the only one I'm not pissed off at. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, let's let's win. But let we need to like go all the way back. So like the thing about the scam, then like an hour later, I got the follow up email and finally I felt better. This was like the moment where I was like, Okay, I'm gonna survive this. This is not a spear phishing attack. This is not personal. Damn it! Now everybody on the podcast knows that I'm like receptive to being scammed. I'm an easy <laughs> mark. I'm human, okay. <laughs> so, so the whole scam that they're running was hijack email accounts, blast everybody in the mailing um, in the uh, address book, and follow up saying, "Hey, I'm your neighbor. I'm traveling." I need to get a present for my niece. Could you go buy an Amazon gift card and email me the the number? That was the scam. Super basic. I don't yeah. know which country they're coming from. I'm guessing, you know, you do this in bulk and you get one person to follow through. Like, cool, that's $100. Why not? Yeah, but you can do it at massive scale. $100 can add up really quickly. Yeah, yeah. And like $100 US in various countries. Like, I don't know. It's, it was a pretty good scam. So I was just like... But definitely low yeah. key, not like I'm out to get Maritza Johnson. That's right. That's right. Um, and now I'm like, I am feeling super uncomfortable with everybody knowing that I'm an easy mark because we don't have good solutions for protecting our stuff. So I don't know. I'm like, and also thinking about this high school lesson I'm putting together, like what is the actionable, effective advice that you give to people so that they don't, so that they don't end up screwed by these scams? I don't think it's possible to train people to not fall for these scams. Well, like, and I, my... Mother gets uh, these fake Apple emails all the time. And I've pointed out the various ways in which you would almost immediately know. Like, there's like misspellings. I'm like, Mom, the world's most valuable corporation probably runs spell check on their emails, you know, but it's got like little Apple. And then I had to teach her how on the phone, like, you can kind of like, uncollapse the sender and then you can see like the full sender address is like 43 characters long and located in a foreign country mm -hmm. um but i i took that for granted i said mom just uncollapse the sender box and she's like what does that mean and i was like oh right right this is just like a digital literacy issue um you know just getting my mom to use a smartphone was in and of itself an accomplishment mm -hmm. um and she's she's taken to it but you know I, th I think what hit you uh, brings up two issues, which is 
you were in a moment of weakness insofar as you were mentally preoccupied by doing something else. Yep. And then we have seen more and more phishing scams take advantage of the fact that we are on mobile screens, right? Oh, so it's definitely. much harder to see the full URL. Yes. Or it has like just enough of a domain name that looks, you know, something similar. Yeah. Uh, again, another one that hit uh, Instagram uh, earlier this week, like the URL was sort of like Instagram copyright infringement dot blah, blah. But if you were to see it, it was like a the top level domain was like Central African Republic, but you wouldn't have seen that in the tiny mobile box. Mm -hmm. Well, and on this one, they had hijacked their account. And so right. they actually sent it. Well, actually. Right. But you probably didn't have enough real estate. Like on the phone, you were preoccupied to sort of just like take in all of the stuff that you could take That's in right. retrospect. All the usual stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I didn't. I didn't check it because I was on mobile and I was like distracted and not thinking. Exactly. And then going back to look at it. It's kind of genius. So they they had hijacked their actual email account, and then probably knowing that the the owners of the email would recover and you know kick them out of the account, they set up a a Hotmail account, which was the same username but mm. to Hotmail, and that was their reply address on the email. Oh, that's pretty. That is pretty smart. And I was like, and actually that little like bit of sophistication is what got me thinking that it was a spear phishing. Like that's what made me think that it was like next level slightly. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. All right. Well, let's turn for a moment from your humiliation. to <laughs> yeah. it, it struck me that we were just talking about um, at the beginning of this interview, how the technology is proceeding faster than people's ability to either alter their behavior or come into some new behavior pattern. And then yeah. before this, Ashley and I were talking about uh, 5G and once all the devices start talking to one another, right? So now they sell smart TVs that have pixels that are intentionally trying to pick up what you're watching. And then do you know where that information is being beamed to? And there is a distinct difference. And they talked about this on the CyberWire earlier this week. There's a distinct difference between my paying for a service like Netflix and sort of agreeing implicitly like Netflix, I want you to curate based on my viewing data, uh, yeah. other things that I want to see Be between that and the device sending my viewing data to some third party provider, right? Like an Axiom or a, even Facebook or whatever, like that just is wildly out of control. And now all the devices are going to start talking to one another and you have no idea what's being sent or, and, and I just thought you're working in terms mm -hmm. of you've mentioned Gmail interface and these are like browser interfaces, but like it compounds when you talk about like actual hardware, like device security settings that are unclear. Like where do I have to go in the TV to turn that off? Yes. And can you turn it off? Right. Right. I'm pretty sure the answer is no. Or it's just I mean, buried way deep under several settings that you turn off the default or something. I mean, the answer is no, you probably can't turn it off. And then even just having the ability to inspect what's happening is not there. And the so, you know, we have no transparency, basically. Uh, there's certainly no control, no useful controls. And then we don't have, I mean, yeah, just we don't have meaningful protections in this space at all. And um, so to I, I I've had trouble recently succinctly describing all of the ways which all of this is a dumpster fire. So I'm just going to call it a dumpster fire. I mean, that feels succinct. That feels succinct <laughs> to me. Excellent. To the point. So that's, yeah. And well, maybe it's, you know, I've settled, I've settled on dumpster fire and then, um, instead of, instead of enumerating all the ways which all of this could be different or should be different. I then think like, where are our points of leverage and how do we do better? Um, so I don't hate technology. I don't like, I wish that I could have a smart thermostat in my house. I wish that I could have light bulbs that I controlled mm -hmm. via an app. I wish that I could, I wish that I could use all this great technology that we've envisioned without feeling guilty and without feeling taken advantage of and without wondering like all of the ways in which I'm vulnerable to the, the makers of the devices or their 
third party advertisers. Um, so, so the thing that I'm like most interested in right now, it drives me a little bit crazy that we don't have answers to seemingly simple questions. And I guess this is where it gets into like, I'm interested in human centered security and privacy. I'm interested in things that are usefully secure and private. So how do we build things that people want to use people that build things that people find value in that just do reasonable things. And I feel like when you frame it like that, like it shouldn't be crazy that I want to have a TV in my house that I pay for where I know what data is being collected and I know where the data is going and I'm able to say where that data goes and how it gets used. I want to be able to have an, a TV that I can connect to the internet where I'm not wondering like, there have are, I just opened a portal to a data collection stream that I'm unaware of that is there you know, are TVs that have disclaimer language in the manuals the the uh, manufacturer will go unnamed that says essentially be careful what you say in front of the TV yes because they can't guarantee like how that Ooh. data data will be used. Which is that is absurd. madness. Which is I just absurd. want to watch a movie, yeah. and I have put a hot mic in my house. That's right. And and you said also it's, it's hard to even buy a TV at this point that doesn't have smart capabilities, right? right? Like they're not right. sold anymore. Yeah. Well, and also the TV in my living room is like fifteen years old. George, you've seen my TV. Yes, it is gigantic. It is gigantic. That it's a dumb TV. It's an old TV from like. I don't know, 2002. It's a hand-me-down for my in-laws because they had a smart TV. I know. (laughs) Well, and here's the thing is that the, if you wanted to get, I don't, well, let's call them dumb TVs. If you wanted to get a dumb TV, it is the way the market has been shaped. It's more expensive than a smart TV because they are, um, they can pass on lower cost to the customer because they're monetizing the data that is being yeah. sent. So it's actually like easier and cheaper to make a smart TV because I'm getting all this data revenue. The old right. TV is like old hardware that I have to manufacture and I own all of the margins and all of the uh, operational costs in building that, which yeah. is just um, economically very dubious to me. I agree. And now I'm remembering a headline I saw in the past week. I don't know if I saw it in the Safeguard Cyber account, but it was basically one of the CEOs, I don't know, some C-suite person from a smart TV manufacturing company in an earnings call basically like said, of course we monetize the data. Like, Right. That is a, that is a legitimate sorry, I revenue the, stream. I, I, right. I didn't like, see that news There's no money item, in selling hardware, so we have to monetize the data. And I was just like, and actually, I feel like there's an interesting thing going on right now where the best way to get answers about how companies are monetizing their data is to listen to earning calls and to listen and watch out for their advertising, like their marketing material to their customers, which is crazy to think aren't the people who buy or use their services. It's the people who buy and use advertising. I don't know. It's the amount of effort that has to go into trying to investigate what's actually happening in these scenarios is totally absurd. And so the project that I'm working on is about inspection and verification. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing that I'm excited about. So take all that rage and take all this like negativity about all the stuff about like the dumpster fire and then turn that into like the thing that I'm working on, which is could we have from verified hardware through formal methods and secure enclaves? This is a research project. So lots of TBDs here. But if you had hardware that you trusted, that you knew what data was coming on, you could have meaningful control over your data. And that's what I'm excited about. Yes, I am excited about that. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) It's super exciting. Um, And the part that I'm interested in is, you know, if we today, today, one area where we see secure enclaves being used is the implementation of the um, touch ID reader on Mm -hmm. Apple devices. So secure enclaves are very useful. They're interesting. The thing about like a limitation of today's implementations is that they're small and you have to trust Apple that they've done it correctly. They're still relying on security through obscurity a bit, a lot, Um, which is not great because I think one of the interesting things about being able to use verification would be that somebody not Apple can actually go in and investigate like, like peer reviewed, 
essentially uh, processes, right? Yeah. Well, peer review and also, you know, attestations and and an external facing summary making claims about what's going on. Like, I guess I think going back to like one facet of the dumpster fire, it's crazy right now that we have to rely on third party audits and the claims of companies around security and privacy that you can't really inspect. So like Apple claiming that Touch ID is secure, we're we're left to believing that that's true. And our ability to inspect that would be through you know, like outside pen testers or folks who participate in like a bug bounty program. Yeah, I was going to say that's why that seems why Apple is putting so much money behind bug bounty, their bug bounty program. Yeah, it's a good, they're good programs. Um, I think the, yeah, the increase in bug bounty programs has been interesting and useful. The thing that I get worried about would be companies thinking that you can do that instead of having a proper security team, which is not you, how it you're works. You're like outsourcing but... <laughs> all of your QA and, and everything yeah. else. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah. But what do you think about legislation? We don't really have any legislation to enforce that these security policies are actually working or protecting our data. I think the only or the most recent data privacy law we've seen come up in the States would be California. Um, I don't know when when that came, was released. Maybe I think a it, year ago. Yeah, and so does do you foresee California's new data privacy law as you know? So goes California. So goes the U.S. But clearly, its market force is the ninth largest economy in the world. Um, has some bearing on new processes and protocols for manufacturers. Mm-hmm. I'm. I'm excited to see there being regulatory movement on data protection. I think there are, um, like there's been criticism of GDPR that it either doesn't go far enough or it codifies the wrong things or it's not really a solution. I think there are a lot of parts of it that have been, it, it gives it gives privacy advocates and the consumers at least a smaller chance of having some equal footing on the data that's collected. Right. So just the ability to request a copy of the data a company has on you. Is very powerful. Is powerful. Yeah. And by that, I mean, oh gosh. Like when I think about the whole Cambridge Analytica thing, um, there are folks who want to claim that the dialogue users saw when they installed the Facebook app that initially granted access to that data for the Cambridge researchers. There are people who will claim that that dialogue was sufficient informed consent for the data that was accessed and that people should not be upset about um, anything that happened because informed consent happened. That's an, a seriously dubious claim. Um and then, like, to go further, like, I feel like that's disingenuous. Uh, folks acting like Facebook has informed consent for all of the data processing that they do is dubious. And even if you were to look at, um, like, the download your data, I guess. So, like, there, it's very difficult to get a, a, a copy of the data that a company has about you. And even by having the copy of the data, things that you've explicitly entered, that does not encompass everything that advertisers and others in the advertising ecosystem are using to target ads to you. Right. So, and so you I've can had a, download your data. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you know how that data is then being used. That's right. And you don't know how that monetized. data is being combined. Right. Right. And, and there like, is there is legislation currently uh, in the Senate, and I can't remember who introduced it. We talked about it on a different podcasts. I know um, Holly from Missouri is the Republican sponsor. Maybe our own Mark Warner, I believe, now that I say that is the other co-sponsor, but it is yeah. a law that is intended to force companies to tell you, one, what data is being collected and how they are monetizing it. So they would have yeah. to disclose to you, we sell this to this third party provider in order to, and this is, oh, and it has to tell you how much your data is worth. So like mm. you personally as the user, we calculate your data to be worth X number of dollars, which is, yeah. I think... Uh, would be a very welcome level of transparency. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. Sorry, the thing from what I was trying to say before, which got kind of convoluted, was just that I've had conversations where people want to demand, like, you're claiming that the level of transparency is not there. Tell me about a piece of data that Facebook has that isn't in download your data. 
I'm like, I can't prove to you a false negative. Like right. how right. am I right. going to exhaustively prove to you? Or like, I don't know. And then I think like, these are like the unknown unknowns. And then I have no reason to trust that these, like that information is there. And I have no ability to inspect these things. And then even like a third party auditor going in to try to ask questions about what data is there. Unless you know what you're asking for and unless you have a specific thing. Comes back to your like, question, Ashley, right? You, right? you don't know what to you ask. You don't yeah. know what to ask. Right. Yeah. It and seem, seems to me that you shouldn't be have to be a security and privacy researcher to even know enough to say that you don't know how to answer that question. Right. And to yes. make these these features, processes, downloads sort of behind all these gates, right? So it's like is the average person who logs on to Facebook up to three hours a day going to like navigate to the part of the page, do this, do that? I mean, just getting back to the yeah. 2FA, like my mother is not going to go through that. No. One, she doesn't know what to do to go through that. And right. two, like, why would you? Yeah. People ain't got time for that. Like, yeah. it would have to be like some sort of high. Well, this is just speculation. It'd have to be some sort of like highly visible dashboard. Like, right when you log in, like this is the stuff that's streaming out of our. Or, our or it should system. be like default in the settings. You shouldn't have to go and change. Right. It. Is yeah. That the point. Yes. Yeah. Another thing I think about with like the ability to download your data. Once you download it, like, where do you put it? Right. It's like, do you download it and then like put it into Dropbox or on like your drive? Like, I don't, I don't want to be signing my name on that idea either. Right. So we can just put terabytes I'm, I'm of my sure. own data just in this <laughs> public right. cloud environment. <laughs> Let me create this massive honeypot. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't know. So, but I do think that there's like, I'm excited by some of the NC Promise and some of the initiatives. I think pushing like pressure toward greater transparency is useful. I want to see a bigger space around um, like consumer watchdog groups or other groups. Like I feel like there's when I think about trust and services and I think about like how much I trust various companies to protect my data or tell me what they're doing with data. It's like, I don't want to have to trust you. Like the thing that I trust a public company to do is to make money. And I don't Correct. even really trust public companies to do that. Like some of them are better at that than others, but I don't trust them to like make good decisions on my behalf. That's weird. <laughs> and I shouldn't have to. So I don't know. I think like, I wish that there were a bigger space for more privacy advocates, security advocacy, more public interest. I wish that in the U S that we had something like I remember in maybe like 2008 or nine, I heard that privacy has like a, or sorry, Canada has a privacy commissioner's office. I was like, that's an amazing idea. And this was just like me as, you know, an individual not knowing anything coming from the U.S. Lo and behold, a bunch of countries have these. So like us using the FTC as our main privacy watchdog. It's right, like, a trade yeah. commission is yeah, not like, as well equipped to deal with no. data privacy issues. No. That's like, not what they were created for. No, they can go after things that are like, deceptive and unfair and like maybe a couple other things but trying to like shoehorn them into being or like yeah, just mean, them acting their well, de facto privacy right it's people. you it's not and if, if we were in a security context we would say you're using like old tech to address new problems right yeah. so you it's very difficult to rely on institutions that were set up for one thing to then say well we're just gonna tack on the second problem, yeah, that's in your remit too. Right. Go right. learn how to do that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So we have talked mostly about the dumpster fire. Yeah. Um, do you foresee, and we've talked about this with some other privacy um, experts, do you foresee a competitive advantage in a capitalist system for new tech that is security by design or privacy by design, right? We've seen a proliferation in services like Telegram, uh, WhatsApp before it was purchased, yeah. in encryption as a as a valued add to a particular product. I think we're well past that now. Um, do we now get into a place where someone saying like, here's this feature, here's this product, here's this service. And we don't, we do not collect your data. 
it's not in our interest to do so. Do you think that there is space where those types of services would have a competitive advantage? I want to say yes. <laughs> but your face I is saying to. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I want to be optimistic and think that these things will catch on. But like really at the end of the day, I think of like most people and having access to cool stuff and useful things will always will always take precedence when you're deciding what to use. Mm -hmm. Like when I think of everybody who's using WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger as their main, like as their primary tool of communication, like I don't personally use those services, but I also forego talking to people that I love because I don't use Facebook. Right. And like that's a crazy decision that it's it's weird that you're like faced with that decision um that like your choice of communication channel shapes the groups that you talk with and how frequently you talk with and at what level and then there are like privacy and security concerns for how you would do that and i guess i like i want there to be a market for security and privacy protections and i want it to i want that to offer a competitive advantage and like i have signal on my phone i feel like i've started using signal with a handful of people at their request um, in the past like year or two. Mm -hmm. And like I work in security and privacy. I'm obsessed with security and privacy. I could talk about that. Like I talk about privacy in my sleep and I don't use signal for all of my like one-on-one communications. Right. I feel like that's telling. And like, why is it? Is it because I don't care about security? No. Is it because like I want to communicate with other people? Yeah. Like I don't. Right. I don't know. Like so, yes. I mean, yeah. and, and that's not like a crisp way of describing any of it, but I feel like for as long as, as long as people are having to choose between value, convenience, and like just what's easy, like I don't, and, and like, I, I feel like there has to be like, there's a parallel for security as safety or privacy as safety that we're not yet at. So like the, the idea that AT&T and SBC offer email accounts to who knows how many people and 2FA is not an option. Right. Like that's crazy. Like that's a very basic level of protection that should just be available. The idea that we're seeing password breaches where passwords are still being stored in plain text, like that is that clown was town. Madness. It's madness. And it still happens, right? And so it it bothers me that we put out password education as though that's a solution when we still have makers who are not right. protecting things. <laughs> It's like, like here is the crazy. here's how you manufacture a key, and here is the duplicate in case you lose that key. This key goes to this front door. Ignore the fact that the door leads to a gaping hole in the ground and not to that house. Yes, yeah. So like, I don't know. I've seen some things lately where it's like data is the new oil, and it's like no, data is not the new oil. It's like data is the new like data is plutonium. Like, well, like. <laughs> And I feel like we plutonium still, is valuable. It's it is. also crazy That's, dangerous. Yes. Yes. So like I think we're still waiting for the right metaphor of like what is this stuff that we're dealing with and how does it matter? And like like I was saying, like what is the impact on the individual level? What's the impact on a collective level? And a cultural level, right? Like time. our European counterparts have a very different notion of government collecting data than apparently we have. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to watch like EU attitudes versus the US, where in the EU they don't trust private companies to do like right by them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And like, but they do trust government organizations to do other things, which is the exact opposite of how we feel in the U.S. And I find that is, paradox yes. weird and sort of strangely both the most yeah. American and the most un-American, right? You, totally. It is, a, it is a culture historically bound by rebellion and, mm -hmm. and uh, a strong vein of not wanting centralized control and yet seems more than happy to cede all that authority to private enterprise rather than yeah. a, a publicly accountable institution. Yeah. It's, you know. I don't know. I feel like at the end of the day, though, like you have so much other stuff going on that if you stop to think about all of the ways that you're vulnerable to. You would never have left the house. That's right. Yes. I to get fished <laughs> in, the, right. in line. Exactly. So I don't know. Interesting times. Yes, we live Super in interesting, interesting times. times. So what? please don't hack me, anybody listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't um, have time for that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. 
Well, thank you very much for coming in. We appreciate the time. Um, and we look forward to hearing more about your research and, and hopefully um, some new consumer controls that, uh, that have improved the overall uh, dumpster fire or maybe helped put it out a little bit. I hope so. I hope that in like three years I can come back and like say with pride that I have worked on a thing that has made a difference. There or maybe I'll just be talking about how the dumpster fire is now larger. But we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. It could go either <laughs> to way. To be continued. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was incredible. Yeah. Always a delight to talk to Maritza um, and uh, just always welcome her perspective. And, you know, guys, keep an eye out for those neighborhood mailing lists. You That's never right. know what's going to come through. That's right. Next door is obviously the next frontier in phishing schemes. <laughs> um, so some news we are watching this week. Very exciting uh, to hear that Microsoft is going to apply California's new privacy law, the CCPA, to all of its U.S. users nationwide in a voluntary effort. I think this is a much bigger deal than it's being covered as because a company the size of Microsoft, this action will inevitably force the hand of several other companies. It will sort of push everything into a positive direction. Right. We haven't really heard about companies voluntarily pushing forward data privacy rights, and especially in the United States. So I'm really excited to hear about this. Indeed. And it seems to corroborate the saying that, you know, so goes California, so goes the rest of the U.S. <laughs> um, other stuff we are looking at this week is news out of the U.K. of a quote-unquote cyber attack on the Labor Party website and infrastructure. Um, it may be a bit too far to say cyber attack. It looks more like um, a small DDoS attack, at least uh, per Graham Cooley's initial analysis, and it has since been stopped. But it definitely raises the red flag and should keep us all uh, on our toes given the high stakes and kind of um, high tension uh, election that the the UK is facing in December. Right. And food for thought for us as we gear up for an election in the US. Yes, that debate is uh, far from over in terms of security, in terms of how the parties are protecting their infrastructure, the candidates and so on. Um, but we'll leave it on a high note. Um, tune in. Uh, we'll be back in another two weeks with uh, Alicia Wanless. Looking forward to that interview. Um, but until then, as ever, our thanks to Matthias Cefaliti for our theme music, Abby Bruce for sound design and production. And until next time, stay safe, y'all. 